Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And the U.S. is gearing up for its first total eclipse of the sun in nearly 40 years. Millions are expected to flock to cities and towns in the path of totality this coming Monday, October 21st, or August 21st, I'm sorry. Much of Indiana will experience 90 to 99 percent um, coverage here of, of the eclipse. It isn't just the public that's excited. Scientists and researchers are given the opportunity to study aspects of the sun that we can't normally observe. And today we're going to be talking about the, all these topics. Um, as our producer said, everything under the sun today on Noon Edition. We have three guests in the studio. Teddy Phillips and Cower is Associate Director of the College Office of Science Outreach at IU Bloomington. Catherine Pilachowski is a professor of astronomy at IU Bloomington. And Sarah Reynolds, graduate student, history and philosophy of science at IU Bloomington. And Sarah also has a PhD in astrophysics. You can join us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us uh, questions um, at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, the solar eclipse doesn't come around very often, so this is very exciting, I'm sure, for everybody in the room and a whole lot of people out there listening to us. So, uh, Teddy, I wanted to, to start with you and ask just how long have you been planning for this and sort of uh, paying attention to, to when it was going to happen? Well, we first started um, trying to decide, you know, we always look to the future and what we're going to really focus in on. And so about nine months ago, we started thinking about maybe we'd have some sort of festival for the solar eclipse. Mm -hmm. We didn't expect for it to be this big at that time, but certainly... Um, yeah, it probably took all those nine months to get the planning. But the really cool thing about it is how the team came together. Um, the provost decided that we needed to purchase the 10,000 solar eclipse glasses. And then from there, I was introduced to the Council of Arts and Humanities. And they've been involved. We have the Whale Scholars, the Cox researchers. And then, of course, the Department of Astronomy. <laughs> and Katie has just been really outstanding in helping us plan. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, about nine months. But really, most of the planning in the last, or actually, most of the work has been in the last month. So just give us a, a sense of what's happening at the festival, what you're planning. Oh, okay. Um, well, the we're going to start the festival at 1 o'clock and run it until 4, but the eclipse starts at 12.57. So we've been telling people that that's really when we're going to start. There's going to be music. We're going to have three DJs and a student band during that time. Um, we also are going to have several science demonstrations. We have History and Philosophy of Science, Sarah's group, and actually Sarah's going to be leading some of those demonstrations. Um, Earth and Atmospheric Science, Physics, Biology, English, they're going to be doing cosmic poetry. Um, we're going to have alternative viewing suggestions for people who want to see the image. Um, there's a lot of ways you can view the um, eclipse without the glasses. Mm -hmm or the cards, that's what we have. Well, Scholars is really involved. Um, SIIU bloggers, are they're going to have a table. And the School of Public Health, the Department of Recreation, Parks, and Tourism, they're going to be doing interpretation. Um, we're really excited to have them along. Right, we'll delve into some of these activities uh, okay. a little bit more later. I, I wanna, we're going to go right to the phones because we've got a phone call early today. Let's go to Sally from Bloomington. Sally? Hi. A friend of mine who is a creationist uh, argues that the equalness of the moon and the sun in the eclipse, that the, the, uh, the, the moon blocks out the sun completely and perfectly, uh, is evidence for design. Is there a good astrophysics answer to that? Katie, you want to try that? Well, one thing I might suggest is that the same thing happens on Jupiter. 
that the moons of Jupiter, when they cross between Jupiter and the Sun, produce very similar shadows on the outer layers of Jupiter's atmosphere. It's a very Wouldn't common that be phenomenon. An on his side? Uh, we see we see it all over the universe when we look at transits oh, oh, oh. and effectively eclipses of stars by other other stars. So it's it's actually a pretty common phenomenon. Uh, there there isn't a distance and weight answer. Well, it's also t important to remember that the moon's distance from Earth varies. Sometimes it's um, the the apparent size of the moon is too small to cover the sun, and ah, so we get an annular okay. eclipse. So it's not perfect by any means. That's exactly what I wanted. All right, <laughs> Thank, thanks for the call, Sally. Can you can you just talk about what people are going to see here in in this part of Indiana? So here in Bloomington and and regions around Bloomington, the sun will be covered almost 94% by the moon. So there's going to be just a thin sliver of sunlight uh, that will remain. Viewers should know that even a thin sliver is enough to burn their retinas and not to look directly at the eclipse. But having only 6% of the sunlight that we normally would have means that we'll see some increase in darkness. The sky will get dimmer. Um, the the environment will seem to change as the eclipse progresses to the maximum coverage. That will take place at about uh, 2.25. That's really the best time to look. Um, there are many ways to view the eclipse with or without viewers. One can use even simple things like looking under trees. The shadows under the trees will take on the shape of the eclipse all through from beginning to end. So it's a really simple way to look at the eclipse. We might see effects of animals. Uh, responding to the increasing or decreasing amount of sunlight, coming in to sort of get ready to sleep for the night, and then wake up suddenly when the sun uh, begins to, to become stronger again. So it's going to be a really interesting time, I think. Even though it's not total here, it should be fascinating to watch. It's still, that, that's a pretty good place to watch, 94%. 94% is a lot. But it's important to remember, it still is the difference between day and night. Totality is a completely different experience. Those who are fortunate enough fortunate enough to be on the path of totality, will see the moon completely cover the sun. At this eclipse, the moon will be 3% larger than the sun, bigger diameter than the sun. And that's what basically controls how long the eclipse will, will last. Um, but it will be like nighttime in those locations. Um, it will get dark like night. We'll be able to see stars and other planets that are in positions in their orbits near the sun. Even, even here in Bloomington, I think people will be able to see Venus uh, near the, to the maximum coverage period of the sun. It should appear to the west of the sun. Um, and people need to be careful in trying to find Venus that they're not actually looking at the sun at the same time. They need to cover the sun so they can't see it, but then look to the west and they should be able to see Venus in the sky. So if it's not a clear day on Monday, how might that change? I'm not trying to jinx anything, but you, you all look like I just really sucked all the oxygen right out of a room. <laughs> but how might that impact what people are able to see? The sky will darken, um, not totally, but it will be like a sort of a shortly after sunset kind of time. Um, people will see these changes in the cloud coverage. They may see some... Uh, sort of transient phenomena passing over the over the clouds, just sort of bright and dark regions, possibly. Uh, there are a lot of, of subtle effects that people can look for. But I think mostly it's going to be the, the general darkening and the, if the sun is out, which we hope and expect it will be, seeing these slivers of sunlight uh, on the ground. So Sarah Reynolds, as a, as a, with a PhD in astrophysics and a graduate student, as a graduate student in history and philosophy of science, I mean, what really excites you about this opportunity? Um, I think it's it's both that aspect of, you know, eclipses have always sort of made history, right? Um, we know that people have been observing eclipses back, um, I think we have actual records uh, back to nearly 5000 BC. Um, that's a long time for people to be noticing these events and recording them. And for a lot of that time, you know, I mean, it's kind of a freaky experience, especially if you're in one of the total um, eclipses. And, you know, it's had a tendency to sort of shock and, and terrify and, you know, appall people. What's that mean? Why is the sun disappearing? And um, so it's, it's something that people 
have always been sort of motivated to try to figure out. Um, and so because of that, it, it's had this long impact in shaping our desire to do science and uh, to try to better understand what's going on up there. Um, and so I think it's exciting to be part of that in the present day. Um, but also as part of that is that you look at this history and you realize that um, all throughout history, significant astronomical events have had a tendency to produce major astronomers down the road, right? People remember their childhood experiences and seeing things like a total solar eclipse or um, like a supernova. And so a lot of the historic astronomers, if you go back and you read about what kind of interested them in it in the first place, it is something kind of like this. So I'm also excited to see what, you know, um, 20, 30 years down the road, what astronomers are saying, yeah, I became an astronomer partly because my parents took me out when I was five years old out in the boondocks of Missouri, and uh, we looked at this total solar eclipse. Mm -hmm. so, Let me add to that. I, I find myself frustrated frequently when I hear stories about schools who are keeping kids inside. Um, and I understand about all the safety issues, but, but these eclipses can be life-changing for a small, maybe not everybody, but some some kids in those schools, and they, as as Sarah says, they 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 give people that interest, that motivation, that desire to dedicate their lives to understanding these phenomena. And I think when we keep kids inside and and don't let them enjoy these phenomena, we're really putting some of our future at risk. That we're not letting those kids have that experience. I know MCCSE is keeping its elementary kids. And um, I, I'm assuming it's just a safety and liability issue. It is a safety and a liability issue. And many of the schools have done a wonderful job of planning ahead, having the right kinds of programs in place to teach the children about what the eclipse is, to uh, maybe they'll watch it on, on video. I have to say that's not the same. That's what MCCC is doing. But yeah. also to be prepared with, with uh, pinhole cameras and viewing cards or glasses that the children can really see and experience this eclipse. And I'm delighted that so many schools have done such a great job. And I'm really a little frustrated about a lot of the schools that thought, oh, this isn't going to be such a big deal, and we're just not going to do anything. So. I'm going to ask Teddy to add to that as a, you know, from your perspective in the Office of Science Outreach. I mean, how important is an event like this for what you do, science outreach? Oh, it's outreach. very important because it's our opportunity to connect with the general pop population about um, with science. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different things that you can do from there. We're always looking for that engaging activity to bring people in, and not just science, but in our environment, the, you know, everything that we do in the college mm -hmm. of arts and sciences and interdisciplinary connections. Mm -hmm. But as a former teacher and one who used to be a teacher educator, um, you know, we've talked, well, Okay, so we'll just, on our website, we have all sorts of opportunity or um, activities that um, teachers can do with their students. It's a great connector, not just, you know, everybody thinks, oh, solar eclipse, I have to have an activity about the solar eclipse. But you think about the components. So one of the big standards is the, um, the sun is a star. Um, and that's something that you can talk about right then. Also, um, Phases of the moon. What a great opportunity to start talking about that, and that's in fourth grade curriculum. Yeah. So, any ways that you can go and connect to it, I think, is a really good. Thing. So, can you give us a web address in case oh, people yeah. want to write that okay, down? Okay, I'll give you the shortened URL. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> okay, go.iu.edu/backward/slash/solar-eclipse. And in addition to the teacher activities, we also have, if any of the general public want to ha hold their own viewing parties, we have a lot of suggestions about what they might want to do for that. Um, we also, of course, talk about what's happening on campus, you know, Celeste Fest. Mm -hmm. um, our big focus is safety. As Katie has pointed out, um, safety is something to be concerned about, especially here on campus. We have um, its first day of school. And I think we've been trying to do a really good job about getting the word out, but, you know, there's always a tendency for somebody not to know what's happening, mm -hmm. being a little concerned. So, yeah, so we want to make sure it's a fun opportunity to really learn so, and network. Yeah, from a safety standpoint, I mean, everybody is being very um, very upfront and saying, do not look at this. It, it mm -hmm. can burn your retinas and everything, but but yet... I mean, I think most people would say, well, I've looked at the sun before, you know, and like in passing, you know, I, I know it's up there. I've seen it. So can somebody explain a little bit about the about the danger? So, yes, um, there's a, we know when we're looking when the full sun is visible in the sky, it's painful to look at it. It 
it, it's very difficult to stare at the sun. We don't. We know better. Mm-hmm. It's our, our eyes naturally avert from the sun. But what happens when we have most of the sun covered is that it isn't so painful. There's just that thin little sliver of light that's that's still present. What's not so well known is that even that thin sliver, when it's imaged on the retina, damages the retina. So it becomes easier to look at the sun. Our eyes don't naturally avert from the sun as they normally do. And that's where the risk comes in, that people feel like it's safe even when it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I meant also, you know, people will say, well, the sun was in my eyes or, or whatever. So oh. that's a good explanation as to why you really have to stay away from that. Let me give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. Toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And the demand for these glasses to be able to watch the solar eclipse has completely skyrocketed. And there are places that are recalling them. There was a library near Terre Haute because then they find out they're not certified. How How do you know if the glasses that you have are okay? NASA has a website um, if you go, NASA has a very good Eclipse website with lots of information about the history, about ways of viewing it, and all sorts of things. Um, but they do also have a page that is specifically about the um, safe manufacturers and the stores where those safe manufacturers are being sold. Now, it's important to realize that you know um, a store might possibly at some point have been selling Eclipse glasses for multiple manufacturers. In which case, you want to make sure that you are actually getting one of the things on that lip on that list. Um, and they also have noted that sometimes the same manufacturer had several different. Uh, lines of eclipse glasses uh, with one set of solar filter film that is approved and other sets that maybe are not. So there, there is real reason for caution, but the information is out there and available on NASA's website. Maybe you have other? I think that's covered it pretty well. I think it's just really hard to know. Uh, the certification is important, but as Many of the ones that aren't certified may also be safe. It's really hard to know. People shouldn't take risks. And I think the indirect viewing, if, if you have any doubt about the viewer that you have, the indirect viewing is the safest way to look. And sunglasses are not a good no. Yeah. no, that's not going to help you. No. Uh, and welder's glasses as well. I think right. uh, if you have welder's glasses of, of 14, I think that's the number, um, then those are safe. But anything else, not so much. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Sarah, who's from Bloomington. Sarah? Hi. Uh, my, my comment about the business of looking at the sun during an eclipse as opposed to on a, on a bright, sunny day is that on a bright, sunny day, your eyes, your, your eyes uh, go down to a pinpoint so that they protect themselves. And on, during an eclipse, it's more as if you'd had them dilated at the eye doctor's office, you know, when... When you when you uh, your eyes are wider open to accommodate to the darkness, and then if you look at the sun, you really put your eyes at risk. Yes, that aggravates it. Um, but even if that weren't true, it would still be dangerous. Thus, the outer uh, photosphere of the sun, which is the part that we see, has a temperature of around uh, ten thousand degrees Fahrenheit, and any any little part of that sun um, will burn the retina, no matter. So, sure. so what but are your, some, eyes, your eyes are less protected during an eclipse than they would be on a sunny day? They are. Uh, that's than, true. Because because it's darker. The other the other thing I want to say, which has nothing to do with that at all, is that during the last eclipse that we had, uh, one of the things that was fascinated was was to look down at the ground, because we live in a in an area with a lot of trees, and so the the, the leaves of the trees made some pinpoints. Uh, you know, the little bits of shadow that there are little bits of sun that they allowed to go through. They pinpoints, and you could see little eclipses on the ground without even any kind of special thing. It was the trees themselves did it. So look down instead of up, and you could see neat little eclipses on the ground. Yeah, everybody's everybody's nodding. In, yeah. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> in fact, that's one of the um, things that demonstrations that we're going to have at the Celeste Fest, so that students that don't get the eclipse cards or even just 
I think it's important for them to know there's alternative viewing ways. We'll have, we have trees right next to the site, so we'll be using them. Colanders are another one, not calendars, colanders. And um, let's see, oh, and fingers. You can even use your fingers to project the image. Anything so. that makes a little hole works. And that's... You know, a little hole, you can, yeah, you're right. You can just make them, make them with your fingers and look down below where your fingers are. So as, as, as Teddy said, the paper plates are great for that. Just poke a little hole in them. This is something that schools can do very easily, um, even without having eclipse classes. There are many ways for the kids to see the eclipse if from they outdoors where they're really seeing that it. Up, that's all. Yeah, look down and not up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There, there are ways to make an eclipse viewer, too. Is that what you're talking about with the paper plate, or is that the something different? Pinpoint camera. That's one right way, here, and so. there's also mm -hmm. the pinpoint projector, yeah. Mm -hmm. What is that, the pinpoint projector? Well, go ahead. It's so it's basically a cereal box or a shoe box. They're very simple to make. Um, all you do is take a box. At one end, you cut a hole, uh, maybe half an inch or an inch in diameter, cover it with tin foil, poke a tiny hole in it with a pin. On the inside of the box at the other end, just, just tape in a white card or a white piece of paper, and then cut a hole in the side or the back end of the box so you can see the white card. Point the pinhole end at the sun and look in to see the image of the sun on the white card inside. It's incredibly simple to make. It takes about two minutes. It's the materials that we all have at home. Um, yeah. It's easy to see this phenomenon. A paper plate, just poke a, a small hole in the paper plate, hold it up to the sun, and the shadow of the paper plate will have a bright image of the sun on the sidewalk below. And we do have that on the website mm -hmm. if you want step-by-step -step directions. And I happen to know that the Herald Times is going to have one on heraldtimesonline.com. Herald We're going to yeah. have a video. I think our producer is tweeting it. Yeah, shows actually, yeah, shows exactly how to do that. Um, Sarah, who was just on the line, was asking where she can get eclipse glasses in Bloomington. <laughs> so if you all can just go ahead and, oh. and address that, because I'm sure a lot of our callers are wondering. Yeah, that's very difficult. For a while, I'm Kroger and TIS and Wonder Lab had them, but I'm quite sure that they're all out. Um, depending on how close to campus people want to get, our, and our Eclipse cards are mostly for students, faculty, and staff, but certainly we welcome the general public all the time. This is their campus, um, and so we'll start handing them out at 7.30 in the morning at the what we call the FYE tables. That's first-year experience tables, um, and then we'll hand, hand most of them out then, and then at the amphitheater when we have Celeste Fest, we'll start handing them out probably about 12.45. And, and let me say, not everybody has to have their own glasses or their own exactly. card. The eclipse, the full eclipse will last about three hours. And so there's lots of time to pass things around to share them. I think the cards are the safest thing to share because you don't actually get them close to your eyes. If you have glasses um, and you are a little concerned about transmitting infections, you can clean them off with an alcohol wipe and pass them around. So people should feel free to share. Um, and and we know we have a shortage. We know everybody wants them, and they're hard to get. So, All right. We're going to have to take a short break. We're about halfway through the program. We're talking about the solar eclipse, which is coming up on Monday. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. common mistake that people have made in the past um, using sunglasses to view the eclipse. Um, 
and these are simply inadequate. They let, to, they let through way too much light. If you wanted to use sunglasses, you'd have to stack maybe 20 or so pairs together. And then maybe that would be safe enough. Use only certified safe solar viewing or sun or eclipse viewing glasses. If these glasses are not readily available to the population, people might try to cut corners and say, well, I'll just use my sunglasses or something. Well, this is a very dangerous thing to do. If you had no eye protection, you might take a quick glance at the sun for maybe a half a second, and that probably wouldn't do any lasting damage. But if you think you are protected, then you might view the whole eclipse, which might last 15 or 20 minutes. Well, during those 15 or 20 minutes, you will damage your retina. Um, this is the reality. The longer you look, the more damage will happen. Welcome back to Noon Edition. That was Dr. Arthur Bradley, an IU professor in the School of Optometry, talking about the dangers of viewing the solar eclipse. We're talking about the eclipse with three guests here in the studio today. Ted, Teddy Phillipson Cower is, uh, is Associate Director of the College, uh, the College of Arts and Sciences Office of Science Outreach at IU Bloomington. Katie Pilachowski is Professor of Astronomy IU Bloomington, and Sarah Reynolds is a graduate student in history and philosophy of science at IU Bloomington, and also already has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Kansas. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And just to play off of Dr. Bradley there, Katie, you were talking about just ways that people have viewed this in the past. It's unsafe, so if you can talk about that. Just, just a bit here. So historically, people have naturally wanted to look at eclipses, and a lot of methods were devised that, that made that possible without looking directly at the sun. Many of those, before we knew as much as we do about a damage to eyes, were very common and very popular. In the 19th century, for example, people would, would use uh, smoke on glasses. They would smoke the glasses and get a kind of a covering of carbon film. Um, not safe enough. People would look at reflections of the sun off a pool of water. Not safe enough. Don't do those things. Um, today, it's tempting to use digital cameras or, or viewfinder cameras. And um, Sarah can talk a little more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is another thing we think, oh, well, we have these kinds of technologies, you know, I can use my phone or I can use my camera or I can use, um, and, you know, a lot of people think I've got a telescope, you know, a little telescope, I can take it out, I can point it at the sun and, you know, uh, try to filter that some way. Um, it's important to recognize if you're not filtering the light that goes into the telescope, if you don't have a solid solar filter for your telescope attachment, you run the risk of overheating elements of the telescope itself. That glass can get very hot when you concentrate the energy from the sun on it um, and can melt interior uh, braces and stuff like that. So unless you've got a very good telescope set up where you've already invested in a solar filter um, that allows you to look under at the sun in normal circumstances, you don't want to be trying to, to wing it on the day of eclipse. Um, but also with cameras and other things like that, you have to be very cautious that you're not giving a path from the light from the sun into your eye. Um, and also recognize that just like the sun's energy can fry those portions of your retina, it can also fry the detectors in your camera device, right? So if you've got a CCD chip in your camera and you're pointing the sun at it for any length of time or repeatedly taking pictures of the progression, you're going to have these same sorts of problems. Um, so again, this is where you know the, the, the safe technique um, for most of human history has been to look at the shadows. And they are, they are really you know, compelling. I mean, it's not like, oh, well, you know, shadows. I, I, I loved the caller earlier, you know, mentioning this, this effect under the trees, because that's a beautiful artistic effect where just the light filtering through the tree leaves creates all these little, you know, what would normally be little circular pricks of light all turn into crescent shapes. And I've seen some photos that are just gorgeous of that effect. Um, so, you know, if you want to get out there and do photography, I'd suggest don't be pointing your camera at the sun, be pointing it at the people around you who are observing or the shadows on the ground. Um, but also, you know, I think it's important to take a certain amount of time just to appreciate the experience 
Um, you don't have to be staring at the sun, and you shouldn't be, um, unless you have the appropriate equipment uh, in order to, to really notice what's going on. All right, we're going to go to the phones. We have David, who's been patiently holding. David from Bloomington is on the line. Yes, my question uh, concerns uh, eclipses over history. Um, we've had a number of times where there would be some precipitating uh, piece of historical evidence and then an eclipse afterwards. Can you talk about some of those things? Yeah. Um, well, I think part of the challenge is that, you know, this is one of the things that, that happens, is that people see an event like this and they think, why is this happening? And there's a strong tendency to connect it to something that is going on also at that time. We think that, you know, if something major happens in the world around us, that it must be connected with, you know, major changes in civilizations and so forth. And so a lot of the a lot of the mythologies and the, the superstitions around eclipses were concerned with that very thing. We, uh, you know, people have always known that the sun is important for Earth, right? It determines a lot of things about our climate. Um, you know, we need it. <laughs> Uh, just on a regular everyday basis. And when it disappears, that's a big sign. Um, the sun has also been connected with all sorts of imagery. Um, it's been con connected historically with uh, gods, god figures, um, rulers. And so, uh, yeah, um, you, you end up with all these sorts of developments of mythology, both trying to explain what is going on, but then also trying to think, you know, what is the significance of that? Is it connected to a human event? Um, and you end up with uh, the formation of ritual around that. So, for instance, in Mesopotamia, the sun was connected with the king, and so an eclipse was seen as something that um, might indicate a change of power. And they, they had, you know, fairly complex rules, actually, about what sort of conditions might determine that or not, but then they also had developed certain rituals. Okay, so if an eclipse happens, what are you going to do to make sure that it doesn't, you know, destroy your power as king? And so there would be rituals uh, connected with trying to save the king um, after an eclipse um, and, and counter that imagery. David, is that uh, anything else? Any follow-up? No, no, I, um, you know, I, I keep thinking about uh, you know, something like even uh, as significant as uh, Dr. Meats, our, uh, one of our optometrists who's about to retire, and we'll have a, an eclipse uh, shortly thereafter. So, yes, uh, inter interesting stuff. Thank you. I think it's interesting. There's this, there was a 1932 article in the New York Times talking about this eclipse that we're going to have Monday. How is it that we're able to predict these so far <laughs> in advance? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've definitely gotten better at it historically, but um, I think it's 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 remarkable to realize how far back we've actually been trying to do that. Um, and we know that even back uh, around 100 BC, they had devices. Um, there's a thing called the Antikythera mechanism, which was this little device with a bunch of gear wheels that seems to have been entirely um, designed with the purpose of trying to show the predictions of eclipses. And so they had figured out that there are these different cycles um, of when the Earth and the Sun and the Moon might line up. Now, it turns out it's it's extremely complex and it's very tricky. It's easier for lunar eclipses where the Moon is being blocked than it is for solar eclipses where the Sun is being blocked um, because the Earth's shadow is a lot bigger than the Moon's shadow and it's not as, as dependent on position. Um, so they weren't they weren't necessarily very good at pinpointing the exact day of a total eclipse, but they could get in the right ballpark of when an eclipse was likely. Um, and so we've had those cycles for a long time. Now, we, of course, we have very good information. We have very good measurements of these cycles so that we um, have you know, precise, much better precision about you know, the exact distance of the moon, the exact shape of its orbit, um, and all the different uh, dynamics that go into one of those calculations. And there are very nice, um, you can actually go online uh, if you look for, oh, I've used this website and I don't know if I can remember its what URL right at the moment, but if you look for something like Eclipse Calculator, um, there's a very good uh, 
JavaScript calculation thing where you can actually put in latitude and longitude coordinates and get a list of all the eclipses that have occurred in a particular century at that place, both the partial and the total and what the coverage was for them. Um, so it's kind of an interesting way of, of looking at that history, and, and we're good at it now. Um, yeah, that's mind-boggling that we can do this. And there's oh, one, yeah. there will be another one in Bloomington here in a few years, right? In 2024, April, April 8th. 8th. So <laughs> April, tw April 8th, 2024, there'll be, uh, Bloomington will be more than 94%. We will be total. Total. So it'll be that total experience. That it will. It'll be night. It'll be nighttime. And remember, we were total also in 1869. I don't remember. Don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so old, but not that not old. Not quite that far. <laughs> uh, so two within 150 years or so is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. and I want to give our numbers again in case you want to join us on the program, 812-855-0811. That's in Bloomington or toll-free 1-877-285-9348 because, of course, this eclipse will be all over the place. Uh, you can also email us at uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, at noon edition. I wanted to ask a little more about the the myths. I mean, what, what's history show us that, you know, people were, you know, what, when people didn't have the scientific technology, the science, the technology that we have today to understand what was happening, are there stories from back then about, you know, how it was interpreted? Um. Yeah, there are lots of them. I mean, uh, and and the nice thing is they're also there's stories from all over the world. Um, ancient Greece and and uh, that area was not the only place that they were figuring out these cycles and learning how to to try to calculate and predict them. Um, a lot of our uh, early historical records of eclipses are actually from China, um, and we know that in Chinese tradition. Uh, the idea was that maybe a dragon was devouring the sun, and so they developed a tradition of um, y you go out and you, you make a lot of noise, you bang on pots and pans and stuff like that to try to scare the dragon off. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I think the, the ancient history is fascinating, but I, I think it's also, you know, it might be good to also talk about, like, some of the more contemporary mm -hmm. history and, and also get into, you know, what are we doing with eclipses today mm -hmm. um, during more like our lifespans we didn't we yeah none of us were here for 1869 right, right. but you know 1869 IU was here and I think one of the things that's interesting is that we actually did have professors here on campus um, Theophilus Wiley and Daniel Kirkwood and Elisha Ballantyne uh, all of whose names probably seem a little bit familiar to anyone living in Bloomington um, and they were out observing the 1869 eclipse they had set up for it um, all got together at uh, at the Wiley House, and uh, we're we're very excited to to witness that eclipse. Um, we've also that was the last total eclipse in Bloomington, but uh, when astronomy sort of took off in the early 1900s uh, at Indiana. Um, we also had several major eclipse expeditions where groups of faculty and students from IU went to other places to um, observe the eclipses, sometimes successfully, and sometimes you do have that bad luck and get clouds at the wrong moment or something like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still successful as a, as a time for teaching and learning and, and um and learning about these things. Mm -hmm. so, so NPR has just been doing this amazing coverage for the past few weeks about these people who just travel the globe to try to see eclipses like Umbra this. Umbra files. <laughs> so, so what is it that scientists hope to learn during an eclipse? So that's the eclipses have played an important role in the history of science. The, the 1919 eclipse in particular was one that was important. It wasn't here in the continental United States. Uh, you had to go on an expedition to see it. But that was an expedition, or an eclipse, where the scientists were able to actually confirm Einstein's theory of relativity from observations of stars seen during the eclipse. So they played an important role in science. For this eclipse, we have, uh, science has moved forward a long way. We have a lot of other opportunities to study the sun. But this particular eclipse provides a special opportunity to observe the sun in visible light in the region just above the surface of the sun. Because the moon is only 3% larger than the sun itself will, is in, as it appears in the sky, we'll be able to see down to something like 10 or 20,000 miles above the bright disk uh, in optical light. This is an important region of the sun because 
the energy of the sun, I mentioned earlier the temperature of the surface we see is about 10,000 degrees. But if you go up 100,000 miles above that, um, the temperature is up above a million degrees, a few million degrees Fahrenheit. And the process by which energy gets deposited in the higher layers is, is not well understood. In this eclipse, we'll be able to explore just that region where that energy transfer occurs. So for scientists, it's also very exciting. That, that uh, you're listening to, to Katie Pilachowski, and I want to say she's she holds the Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy at Indiana University. So Daniel Kirkwood, who was mentioned before, um, has a chair named after him, and she teaches and conducts research on the evolution of stars and the chemical history of the Milky Way galaxy from studies of chemical composition of stars and star clusters, which is sort of what you were talking about there a little bit. So. Sort of, yeah. Now, all of those stars have these same kind of outer atmospheres, and we want to understand those processes. Mm -hmm. for, for those of us on Earth, those processes matter because we live in the outer fringes of that corona of the sun, and it affects communications and power distribution, causes the aurora here on Earth, affects the Earth's magnetic field. And so understanding that is very important for us. It feels like through all this, we've had to be very careful about the way we, we word this in terms of it's what exactly this specific type of eclipse is. So there are so many different kinds. Can you talk about just what the difference is between a total eclipse and an annular eclipse specifically? Yeah. Um, so the total eclipse is that, that point where we, and this gets back to that question about, you know, what's the particular conditions under which we get the eclipse? When the um, moon is at the proper distance that its angular size, right, how big it looks to us in the sky, is actually large enough to blot out the entire surface of the sun, that is what we call the total solar eclipse. So it means that the um, apparent size of the moon in our sky is bigger than the apparent size of that hottest, brightest region, well, not really hottest, but um, that brightest region of the solar surface. And that's when we can see those outer layers, like Katie's just been talking about. Um, sometimes, though, the moon is a little bit too close, right? It's a little bit too close to us, and that means its size in the sky looks smaller. I did that backwards, didn't I? <laughs> Farther away. <laughs> I'm sorry. Watch me just totally. Uh. Anyway, this, the moon is a little bit too far away, which means its angular size um, is smaller. And so because of that, when it gets to that point where um, were it closer, it'd be blocking out the full surface. Instead, it's blocking out the central portion. And so you get a ring, or what scientifically is called an annulus. And so that's what we call an annular eclipse. Um, now, for both of those kinds of eclipses, they only happen for a certain band of the Earth that is where that full shadow is falling. So in this place, um, there's that path across the United States where you have what we call totality. And so for those people, they're lined up where the Earth's, sorry, the moon's shadow is falling across the Earth. For the rest of us, though, we still see some blockage. And so we get what's called a partial eclipse. Um, because only part of the sun is covered from our position. But this is where, like I was saying, historically that's a very difficult thing to, to calculate. You know, um, what place is going to have a total eclipse and what place is going to have a partial eclipse because it's, it's a difference of uh, a few hundred miles between, you know, hmm. blackened sky and, you know, okay, crescents, but um, still seeing a lot of light. So Does that... That's good. Help? Yeah. No. I, it, yeah. <laughs> how, how often do lunar eclipses occur? Are they much more frequent than solar eclipses? We get about two and a half solar eclipses per year, and two and a half lunar eclipses per year. They happen at the same rate. But the thing about a lunar eclipse is because everyone on the dark side of the Earth can see it. That's not the case for a solar eclipse, and so they seem much more rare. Total solar eclipses happen about once every 18 months. Hmm. Partial eclipses are much more common. Okay. Will, will the temperature drop here in this area? Probably a little. Will, will you notice it? Will it be significant? I'm not going to take a jacket, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> it might be noticeable, but, I mean, it's a question of whether it's 
more noticeable than a normal temperature variation, right? I mean, you know, if you have a cold front come through, there's a, a, a temperature drop. Some people notice that and are pretty sensitive to it, and other people are not. Yeah. So. So, Katie, well, where will you be during the eclipse? So. <laughs> I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm headed to Hopkinsville, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to this. I saw the eclipse in 1979 in the Pacific Northwest. It was just an amazing experience. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing another one. We have a, a question from Amy from Bloomington who says her daughter wants to go to the zoo for the eclipse to see how the animals react, and she's wondering whether it's worth it because there's not as much coverage up there. Right. And actually, as you go north, there's less and less coverage. Um, but there is a lot about animal behavior. In fact, um, at our, one of the biology department, Kate Hummels, is going to be presenting some a demonstration on animal behavior. I shouldn't say a, a, a demonstration to it. She's going to be presenting on that. And there's a great way to get involved in citizen science about um, the animal behavior. I don't have the app right in front of me or where you can get that, but Kate Hummels is going to be releasing uh, um, that on our Facebook page about the history and where you can find it most because scientists really want to know what kind of types of things happen um, in the path of totality as well as partial and go out. So citizen science is the perfect opportunity for people to um, say what's happening in their area and then they can kind of grid it, I guess, and you can see the differences. So I can't really say whether it would be worth it because that's that's kind of relative. You know, yeah, the person. Yeah, right. Amy's asking, she wants to know what happens to animals. So it, it varies. Um, people report all kinds of different things. That animals sort of think it's beginning to be nighttime and they start going into their own nighttime rituals, getting ready for, for darkness. Um, birds kind of come to roost. Sometimes the cows will start walking home, ready mm -hmm. to be milked. Chickens go in the coop. Chickens go in the coop. Mm -hmm. Um, there's evidence that plants respond, so I, we all probably watch the dandelions in our yards, and they kind of close up when it gets dark. Be interesting to see what happens during the eclipse. Should we stay home and see what our dogs do? It would be interesting to do that. <laughs> yes. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask uh, more about Celeste Fest. Uh, what are some of the other activities that are that people could uh, could see? Well, the science demonstrations, yeah. of course, and the interdisciplinary. And I think I pretty much told you about that. Yeah. Um, but um, physics yeah. is going to be stepping in for our astronomy department <laughs> because everybody's <laughs> leaving. They're all take, taking off. <laughs> They've been very helpful, though, as we gear up towards it. Yeah, Katie's been wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but um, the undergraduate physics club is going to be providing several different demonstrations. Um, Kate Hummels, as I mentioned, she's going to be talking about animal behavior, but also she has some other volunteers and they're going to be um, showing light intensity changes so that people who um, want to go there, they'll be able to look at and analyze data as the moon is coming in front of the sun and on the other way out too. So that'll be very interesting. And, and we like to do those types of things where people are, have that opportunity to analyze data. So this will be real time, real good. Mm -hmm. um, let me see. I'm trying to think of what. Yeah, we've pretty much. What's Sarah going to be doing there? Yes, Sarah, what are you going to be doing there? <laughs> uh, I might not be there, but. Um, oh. <laughs> what? Uh oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah. My colleagues will be there. <laughs> I also was. Yeah. I, okay. I'm, I'm setting it all up, but I, I might be ducking out of town. That was my plan. Um, we'll see. You can try to persuade me after. Uh, but. Uh, but basically, um, our department is going to have an exhibit that's on the history of, of eclipse science, um, talking about some of the, the ways that it's changed the way that we've done science over throughout history, but also talking about specifically some of what that's looked like at IU. So we'll have some more information about some of those different groups of people that I was mentioning earlier that were actually IU scientists, IU astronomers, IU students that went and studied eclipses. Um, so yeah, just talking about the history. and. And we might also talk about um, the, the pinhole projection uh, kind of thing is, is connected to an interesting um, historical device called a camera obscura, which uh, is a way that you can actually sort of project an image from an outside lit area into a room and, and magnify it sometimes. And um, this was a popular thing historically that's, that's kind of connected to the same sort of pinhole devices that we're using. So we'll, we'll have to send people that. back and forth. Um, we'll show them how to build it. <laughs> and then you can 
yeah. So, so is there is there any chance of any kind of you know disruption created by a solar eclipse? Like you know we talk about solar flares that might create something. Well, uh, one of the disruptions is happening out in California right now. I'm sure you've heard about um, the power grid and how they're concerned oh, because solar. they have so much solar that power. Was a story this oh, morning. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. actually. Um, um, we have the science bloggers who are going to be there. I forgot to tell you about this. This is going to be fascinating. And Joanne Tracy, who is um, helping facilitate the science bloggers, um, she went over to check on the solar display that they're going to have there. But they're going to be addressing that problem and showing why that why there is a problem. So we'll have a demonstration on that. But remember, that's about the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth, the effect on the sun itself. Not so much. No. Gotcha. No. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're unlikely to have a major solar event. Most of the, yeah. most of the, you might see things online about, you know, there might be disruptions to cell phone service, but all of that will be human created. Right. Um, it'll be our reaction, just like all of history. It's our reaction that's actually going to be one of the strongest effects of the eclipse. And, okay. um, you know, if people are clogging the roads trying to get yeah. to, you know, maximum totality or, you know, all busy tweeting fervently about, you know, oh my gosh, it's closer, you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. Like that could. Gotcha. Okay. Um, um, we only have, we have a minute to go. So Katie, could you give us like a, a review in 30 seconds of what not to do during the interview? <laughs> don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. Okay. <laughs> I don't need 30 Simple. seconds. Okay. All right. But there are lots of other ways to see it. So. All right. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank uh, our guests. We've been talking about the solar eclipse. Teddy Phillipson Cower, Associate Director of the College of Arts and Sciences Office of Science Outreach. Katie Pilachowski, the Professor of Astronomy at Indiana University. And Sarah Reynolds, a graduate student at IU in the History and Philosophy of Science. For Sarah Whitmire and Angelo Batista and Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.